Absolutely. And I do think it is important to note that any opinions expressed during John's Comic Corner are the, <laughs> uh, are the opinions of the person who has expressed them and do not necessarily represent that of John's Comic Corner, the creators, the producers, or the staff of April is the Cruelest Month. I think that's uh, a wise disclaimer to throw down, John. Probably should have yes. done that at the beginning. Probably should have done that, that at the top, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so Josh, cut that and put that on like before the mu the cue music starts. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Comics Corner. I am your host, John. Uh, joining me as always, uh, almost always, uh, my partner in crime, uh, my uh, other quarter, uh, Mr. Matthew Klein is here. Why, hello, John and dear listeners. It is always fun to be your accomplice uh, as we uh, strut to the corner, as it were. Uh, very, very excited for today's offerings. And how are you, my friend? I am doing well. Thank you. How about yourself? You are uh, far I away very, today. I, I am away. Uh, there's heat back on in my apartment for the first time in three weeks. So I have very little to complain about anymore. So I have to find something new. Um, so I hope you will help me, as always. Sure, I'll do my best. But one Thank thing we cannot complain about is our other guest who has not been with us for quite a while, Mr. Kelly Johnston. Welcome. Hello, hello, gentlemen. It is a pleasure as always to be speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You uh, betcha. Today we are going to be discussing a very, very important book um, in honor of uh, Black History Month for February. We are going to be discussing March. Uh, written by uh, John Lewis and Andrew Aiden, with art by Nate Powell. Um, this book is readily available in any comic store or bookstore. Um, and I have to tell you guys, so this is this might be a, a difficult one for us to discuss because I don't really know how to discuss this book, except in very large kind of grand terms. It's a very, very difficult one to discuss, I think, um, in the micro. Um, and I almost sort of want to say there should not be spoilers involved in this because this is a nonfiction book about history. And if anything is spoiled for you, you should have a better understanding of history. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, there will be, there are, I think there will be spoilers, but to your point, John, it's one of those, John Lewis is is a rather well known uh, historical figure, and actually, I would argue this this project helped uh, uh, increase his exposure and his life story uh, to generations of of people that really hadn't known much about John Lewis. But uh, so yeah, um, you've got Wikipedia, so you can be spoiled regardless, listeners. Let's be very that's true. And let's face it. Now, granted, this is only book one of three, but just the topical matter, too, in general, is is 
for the most part, widely known. Although one of the things that I really enjoy about it is that it gets into very specific details that that are not often included in in a narrative about the time. So I, I actually what it reminds me of more than anything. Um, and I mean, this is the best possible comparison. But when I was a kid, they used to have um, uh, classics illustrated um, mm-hmm. where they were either famous famous novels or big historical events and they were they were done in graphic novel form although at the time they weren't referred to as graphic novels they were just a comic book book version of yeah exactly but um well no they didn't call them funny books Matthew because I wasn't born in 1908 but uh but I was born in 1912 and they had shifted off funny book by then Uh, (laughs) um but all, all kidding aside, it reminds me very much uh, of that, but in the best possible way. Like it's, it's a really, um, it's a really lovely book. And to your point, uh, John, as a matter of fact, when I asked you where I should pick it up and you told me, you told me any comic store and then you added, and I think that this is important. You added a, a sentence, which is a sentence, which is any comic store that you go into, that's not carrying it. Don't, don't shop there. Yeah. Yeah. Like if they're not carrying it, then it's not a good, it's not a comic store that's got like a good reach was the way I interpreted that. But I, I have an even greater understanding of what you mean. So. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's start off with a, a little historical background. Uh, John Lewis uh, was a congressman for Georgia from 1987 until he passed away in 2020. Um, he was, I believe he was actually the last of the people who, uh, spoke, uh, at the March on, um, he was, he was was the last living person on the podium. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let me start off with a question for you guys. Um, was there something in here that you didn't know or that, surprised you um and then i want to lead into a second question which was this was a really difficult book for me to read not because it was it's a wonderful book it's amazing i love this book but it was emotionally difficult for me did either of you guys feel that so let's start with the first question was there anything in here that you did not know uh, for me, I really didn't know much about his early childhood. I didn't realize his um, his growing up on the farm. Uh, his his uh, love of chickens was was such a lovely <laughs> little yeah. episode in this in this book that I thought was was just such a a wonderful detail about you know if you think of the tapestry of someone's life, it's it's little details like that that really make it sing. Um, so I really didn't know a whole lot about John Lewis's childhood, where he grew up, the type of life he had, his his fight for education. Um, so all of that was was pretty new to me. What about you, Kel? Um, uh, certainly all of that is true. I did not know uh, any anything about John Lewis's life prior to him being uh, actually prior to him being a congressman or prior to him being involved in the civil rights movement. Um, <clears throat> certainly didn't know about the chickens, but. The other thing that that was, I, I wouldn't say I, I realized it, it was one of those facts that like you encounter, you go, oh, right. I did know that, but I had forgotten it was the sequence where they were talking about preparing to to deal with uh, a demonstration or a sit in, et cetera. And that they practiced literally for weeks, if not months, uh, practicing 
nonviolent resistance, including which which involved them hurling insults and and epithets at each other and threatening each other and and trying to push each other's buttons so that when they were in public, you know, they were less likely to be triggered. And the only reason that struck me is because in any show, in any any movie or any documentary or whatever that you see, you see people that are practicing, you know, nonviolent resistance. But I don't recall ever getting like a, a, a basic sort of primer in like, okay, that isn't something that somebody goes, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then they walk in and they show this restraint. Like there is, it's like, it's like a, it was weirdly like a workout montage where it's like they're building up to like being able to do this. And that, that really struck a, a strong chord with me that that was a, that's a fact that kind of gets glossed over whenever there's talk about it. So for me, that, yeah, was, that, that was utterly fascinating. Yeah, that was, that was something that struck me. Um, and again, sort of uh, very difficult to sort of see how, how people actually prepare for something like that. Um, oh God. Yeah. Because I don't know. I don't know that that is something that we would be capable of. We, not the three of us, we culturally would be capable of doing right now. I don't know that we are capable of not being angry. Yeah. And again, this is why I'm, this is why this conversation is odd because I want to talk about the comic, but I think every, time everything is just so part of such larger issues that i don't really know how to kind of go back and forth well i think it's i think that's a testament to the book um because i think that the book wants to provoke that sort of conversation about not just the story of the book or the story of one man's life but the story of a movement the story of history of a movement the story of uh of race and the um, what came before, what's happening currently, and what do you want to see for the future, and how can you accomplish those goals? And so I think that, you know, I think it's a testament to exactly the intention of this book, that we are having that same sort of thing where it is, it's very difficult. If you, if you want to, if you want to break this down from a technical standpoint of, you know, inciting incident and climax and denouement and character arcs and all that, it it's it doesn't want to it it screams well, to be something I mean, different than that. It, it's you know? also it's, non it's also nonfiction. So um, unless they're ha- trying to hammer it into a specific narrative, how, how would one even discuss the narrative of a person of not even his well his whole life up into that point, right? Like you know, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about the storytelling is Nate Powell's artwork. Um, Powell's artwork is, is very, it's accessible, right? It's a very accessible style of artwork. Um, kids can read this book from 13, 14 years and up. It's not overly stylized. It doesn't, um, it doesn't glam up the story of, of John Lewis's life. It's a very, it's it's effective storytelling, but the style in and of itself doesn't take away from the storytelling. Sometimes art, you know, stands out for the sake of it being the artwork and you sort of right. lose your, you sort of stop thinking about the story to examine the artwork here. It doesn't do that. It doesn't ever pull you out of the story. Um, it doesn't pull you out of the retelling 
and that you're here for. Yeah, um, I don't. Uh, I I don't know that I would call his art accessible. I would call it visceral, because there is no. Sure. You see the beauty and the ugly and you see the peace and you see the war. I, I just, I think he does something that is, I, I don't know that an artist could do this as well if it were not nonfiction. And I, I, I almost wonder, um, you know, there's lots of, of comics and books out there that are stories about a particular event, a particular historical time. I, mm -hmm. I don't know that there's ever going to be anything that is as, um, I, I want to say as important as a, a first person account of someone who was and there. It's a, it's a um, timing is everything as well. Um, although this book came out, I want to say the first book came out, what, 2013? 2013, yes. So it was yeah. still it was still during Obama's second term before our most recent, you know, before Black Lives Matters and, and even Ferguson. So it's it's a fascinating, you know, exercise too, in that when the book came out, it was it was very critically beloved and it was successful. But I feel like as the years have gone on, it's become seen as a more important um, work within the canon of, of graphic novels and nonfiction. This book, I mean, I've, I've checked the numbers. I check numbers for IDW sales every month. Um, and March, this book and the series in general continues to be one of its top five bestsellers. And that's nine years afterwards that it that well, first came out. So it, it's still, it, it's it's very important. I think too, that there is a time where it's important is even more so, right? I feel like it's, 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 it's a great, it's a great touchstone of the moment for people to, to rely on and utilize. Yeah, I'm sorry, Kelly, you were gonna say something? Yeah, sorry, Kelly. Oh, no, 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 I, I, uh, I was, I was listening to what you were saying and thinking about it. Um, I actually, based off what's been said, I have several thoughts. Um, I think the artwork is particularly interesting because I think it is, as John said, very visceral. It's very evocative, but it, it is also um, the fact that it's in, in uh, black and white shades of gray, which a considering that this is effectively a memory story, like the framework that they're using is that he is getting ready to go to, uh, I, I, I've only read book one, but I, I'm gathering the inauguration or, or him receiving a, an honor in Washington, D.C. But it, the, the present is him in his office as a congressman in D.C. Talking to, talking to constituents, and he is telling his story in, in flashback. And so, first of all, I think that the artwork suits in the sense of that it's memory and how memory can be both very very clear and specific and then and then the 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 periphery gets sort of lost or gray and that style is reflected just in the in the drawing and i think that's a i think it's a really beautiful pairing and i think um the second thing is that the art is and i mean this in the best sense although i don't know that it's going to sound great outside of my head but um the art is succinct in that it 
it gets the emotional impact of the words across without overshadowing the words. Um, the story is front and foremost in this graphic novel, which is, I think, as it should be. Like that's the the words are what matter most in this in this book. Um, and then to the question of timing, I think that I think you know again, Matthew hit it on the head. Two thousand thirteen is when it comes out, and it had very critical acclaim. And in the nine years, <laughs> I don't know the month it came out, but in the nine years since. 2013, our, um, I think, I think it's safe to say our cultural sense of ourselves as a country has danced all across the dial um, in some very, very negative ways. And I am not to say that there haven't been positive things that have occurred in that nine year span, but the fact that the fact that we actually now live in a country where actual documented facts get called into question and believed and the question calling becomes believed more and more so that the fact that we live in a time where alternative facts is you know is a is a synonym for lies but it's a cinnamon synonym that everybody is willing to roll with and go okay yes we we will accept that as so i think that a book like this, which is a firsthand testimony of this is what happened. This is the experience I had. And this is, these are things that occurred and don't forget is super, super, super important in a way that I, I don't think anyone in their right mind would have predicted nine years ago. Like if no, you told I, me not, just to say that if you told me nine years ago that we would actually have to like actually question facts coming down from any number of places, I would not have believed the extent of it. And so I actually feel like a book like this is super important in its timing because of that. And that that's all. That, that was it. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, John. No, 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 that's fine. Um, I think, um, and this is going to go to a very large question, um, which neither of you has to answer if you don't feel comfortable doing so. But should the timing of something like this matter? Shouldn't the timing of something like this be universal? The way that the Diary of Anne Frank should be universal, the way that Mouth should be universal, the way that, uh, you know, the story of, of anyone from uh, Madam C.J. Walker to, uh, to the novel, The Color Purple. I, well, I, I, I understand the, the importance of the, timing of the book being published and i understand that but my larger question is should the timing of something shouldn't the timing of something like this story be universal why why should why are we in a position where we forget these stories i mean that's a very large question it is a very yeah, large it, question yeah, and neither of you have i mean Neither do you have question. to answer it if you don't feel comfortable. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm I'm fine answering the question. I don't know that there's um, a please, I don't know John. What... Really? You're asking us if we're comfortable dumping into like one of the most thorny questions imaginable about the existence itself? Are you kidding? That's like a Tuesday for us. Like I mean, go, Matthew, go. Here's the thing though, right? I mean, it's it's one of those things where everything everything goes around in cycles in terms of the amount of attention it's receiving and the amount of urgency it's given. Um, 
that's why you can go back to those universally touch point stories at some point. Uh, Mouse is a perfect example of, of it. Because I can tell you, as working for the publisher of Mouse, the, the distributor who distributes from the publisher who's part of the same company, when it was banned from a Tennessee school district last week, there was an interest and orders for that title that you had not seen maybe ever. And that book is how many decades old? Um, it's at least two, right? Yes, at least at two. Least. So it's it's one of those things where uh, I don't know that I don't know that the stories are forgotten, John. I do know that there are other stories that will come up and take their place. There are other stories about the Holocaust that have come out since Anne Frank. There are other stories about race that come out. There are other stories about other issues. Um, and so I think that sometimes the catalog gets refreshed. And then I think sometimes, unfortunately, usually a, a negative event of some kind comes out and there is a call to remember and pay attention to certain stories of the past. And it finds a new audience is when you see renewed interest of it. Uh, March and Mouse, for that matter, are on syllabuses for eighth grade and high school readings all over the country. I mean, um, not in Tennessee, but, you know. They are in, in most of Tennessee. Um, just just that, where was it? I don't remember who banned them now. I think it was McKinn. Uh, I think it was called McKinn County. I'd have to look it up. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it wasn't like a major city, but yeah, I remember. But yeah, to that point, the there's an incredible comic book shop called Nirvana Comics in Knoxville, Tennessee, who raised $105,000 uh, to buy copies of Mouse. They bought over 1000 and they're sending it to students who want it nationwide. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where these stories are forgotten. I don't know that forgotten is the word that I would use, John. I think that the stories are supplanted with other stories. I think that the public consciousness, uh, is supplanted with another issue, another crisis, something that takes over the primary focus. And then it comes back around and back around. It feels very cyclical to me in that sense. I, I, I'm going to push back on this. Sure. And I'm going to and I'm going to push back on this and and ask you a question. Okay. Sure. So, um what do you remember that was in the public consciousness? Let's say let's let's leave March for a second and let's sure. specifically um because Mouse is in the news right now and and we'll come back to March in a second because uh I want to talk more about this book. What was, what was really sort of in the public consciousness between, say, the Diary of Anne Frank and Sophie's Choice, and what was between Sophie's Choice and Mouse, which was Schindler's which List, which ended in 1991. Okay, so you have four things. So everybody Life gets Life is beautiful. One. Life is beautiful. Yeah. So everybody That's gets like a decade, but then there's this sort uh, of. Wasn't there what Angela's Ashes as well? Angela's Ashes. Ashes is oh, no, about the Holocaust. About the Holocaust. About the Holocaust. I mean, it's yeah. I, I guess the Irish Holocaust, if you want to think yeah. of it in those yeah. terms. But uh, but I guess my question is, I, I understand your point of recycling, and I understand the point of adding new things to the canon. But and new when you for, but when you forget these stories, like we shouldn't be forgetting these stories. We should not be in a position where we are recycling these things because what happens when you recycle these things is you have to live through them again. We should not be 
given this story, given what happened, uh, you know, what has happened from 2020, if, if we kept the story of the civil rights movement of the 60s in our, the forefront of our brains, in the forefront of our minds, in the forefront of our, our schools, not to make people feel guilty, not to make anyone who is white feel guilty, but to make people understand this is part of the tapestry of the American history. And Kel, this is gonna kind of tie into our Uncle Sam conversation. But when we don't discuss these, when we don't talk about this, we have to keep going through this over and over again. How many times do we have to learn a lesson? And that's, think that's why I push back on, oh, these things are cyclical. They shouldn't be cyclical. That's my point. I, I think you're- Oh, no one's disagreeing with that, John. Just so you're you're right. I'm, I'm not right, saying but... it's a good thing that it's cyclical. I'm just saying that is generally seems to be how it is. Yeah, I, I let, let me, if, if I may, uh, in, weirdly enough, in listening to you talk about it, John, what occurs to me is, um, well, two thoughts. First of all, I, I, first of all, agree, 100% agree with you that we should, in fact, not have to be reminded of this. Like, this should be, this should be known. It is not known, right? And, and that it becomes more relevant in the nature that, in the cyclical nature that Matthew's talking about is abhorrent like and i actually think and i'm not trying to excuse anybody i'm not trying to excuse myself or yourself or anybody else but i think that there is only so much of a thing that people can have in the forefront of their minds at any given time and we we process in this country narrative in a really specific way that always ties a bow on it at the end and so when I say, I'm not trying to be funny when I say that I think to some degree the reason this happens is because there is a, a huge imbalance in civil rights in the country. There are protests and, and there, there are laws that are, that are robbing rights from people. And then there are protests and there are marches. And it's an ongoing process that we are still unraveling it. We're not done. But there was a tendency to think that right after frankly, the, the death of Martin Luther King and the, the, the repealing of several Jim Crow laws, et cetera, there was a, 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 sort of, a sort of conscious wide cultural psyche went, okay, that's the end of that story. We beat the bad guy and things are back to normal and okay. And that's not true, but that's actually how we process every, almost every story that we consume, whether it's in comic form, television, movies, books, we tend to like to put as a as a as a culture a button on it and think of it in terms of done. And in real life, what that leads to is no, it ain't done, and here it comes again. And we do the same thing, and then it ain't done, and here it comes again. What I think is really frightening, insidious, is we have now hit a phase where it is cycling, it is cycled enough with distance that now you have people that begin to more actively question the original narrative. I.e., you have people that question whether the Holocaust was real in terms of like Mao's, or you have people that question whether or not things were as bad for people of color during the 19, well, ever. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny. I think that that's part of actually what happens is we have this bizarre tendency to go, 
problem we fixed it problem solved done next so day. i'm gonna i'm gonna push back on that too yeah please. and i'm gonna say i think straight white people correct think that it's done uh, but agreed. for those of us who are not straight and white and we are dealing with it we see it's not done and when we right. say hey guess what we might not be kick getting kicked out of lunch counters anymore but all of these things that are happening there are still church bombings there are still people who are attacked and beaten and hurt and killed and when we say that there comes around this idea of well you want me to feel bad i don't want anyone to feel bad i just want people to acknowledge things so Agreed. now now no. we've strayed into a Anyway. No, 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 no. But, but, no, no, I mean, but John, to, to build off of that, like, again, to harken back to Uncle Sam, one of the reasons Uncle Sam was a startling book um, is because not unlike March, it's about true things. And it's true things that never get told in history. They, they literally have been ignored or downplayed to the point that the majority of people don't know this about their own history. Right. I, I think that March does a similar thing. I agree with you. I think that it is due to straight white people predominantly male. I also think that like good or bad, right or wrong, the dominant paradigm of culture for the last 200 years in the country has been dominated by that group. And therefore that has an effect on everybody living in the country. That's not to, I'm not trying to victim shame here or blame at all. I'm saying that like, I still think that that's the way we process narrative and to answer your question as to why this keeps happening. I think it's because of the way we literally process information. I think it's a bad system. I want to be very clear, but I think that that is part of the reason it has this cyclical nature is because there is this tendency to put a bow on it. And to your point, when someone comes along and goes, no, 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 there ain't no bow on that. We're not done. Then there's defensiveness. Then there is pushback. And so I I'm not disagreeing with you, but I am saying that I still think that weirdly and I realize that I'm also speaking from a, uh, frankly, a position of, of privilege where I, I have the luxury of being able to see it this way. So this may not be a universal truth. This may only be a perceived thing, but I, weirdly, I see a corollary between the way, at least I experience narrative in America and the way the majority of people I know do. And this thing you're talking about of why do societal ills keep cycling back? I, I think that weirdly the way we deal with like a narrative a big narrative in our head does that because because otherwise like otherwise i don't i the, the honest to god answer is i have no fucking clue i think it's terrible that, that it happens and i think you're right that it shouldn't be a matter of timing it shouldn't it, sh it should you know it but i also acknowledge that it does though that right now i feel like march has more re relevance to us than it might have had in earlier days, but then I also may not be seeing from a from a full on perspective. It may have had as much urgency nine years ago as it has right now. But somehow to me in this moment in history in our country, it feels like it has more urgency than it did maybe even when it first came out. Um, and well, I, I say that. Yeah, just I, just I think there's also something to be I think one of the great things about this series in, in March and its popularity, you know, it's three volumes, 2013, 2015, 2016. Um, a sequel series called Run just came right. out from Abrams' book, the first uh, volume of that in August of 2021, about further 
uh, years in his career. But I also think one of the big things that we're talking about here is it's a matter of education. Um, to your point earlier, John, um, it's a matter of educating people at various points in their lives about what happened, what didn't happen uh, for race relations, for women's movement, for LGBTQIA plus movements, for the Holocaust, for genocide in Africa, for just about everything. And now what is interesting, though, in, in publishing, especially in the last several years, is that you're seeing more titles like this. Uh, another one that's extremely popular right now, they call us enemy about Japanese internment camps in the United States. One of the most shameful periods and actions taken by, uh, by the, the baby boomer generation, basically the war, the greatest generation as it were, um, excuse me. And so it's, we're finally starting to hear more stories about this. George Takai's uh, graphic novel is the best-selling IDW title um, month in and month out since it's come out. Um, that and March are generally in their top five every single month for, what is it, like a year now. Um, you're seeing books about Rosa Parks, Cesar Chavez, um, that are being designed for kids between, I want to say, five and eight years old that are being released now, literally in like the next month. Um, so I think a large part of it is it's a matter of education. You see a title like Anne Frank or Mouse or now March that kind of uh, integrate into the education uh, programs of this country, but you need more. Um, you need them to not go away. You need them to not just be once in somebody's education. You need to integrate this history into all education. For me, when I was in high school, it was the United States by Howard Zim, history of the United States by Howard <laughs> Zim. Which, people's history, the people's, people's history, history of the United States. Yeah. And it was, that was a text that made me look at American history in a way that I had never been challenged to and never considered. That text was not really being done a lot in high schools though, in the late nineties, it was still kind of finding its way through. So it takes books. It takes oh, the late nineties. So, so long ago. So um, long ago, those late nineties. A, I applaud your humble brag about the fact that you're so much younger than myself. Um, <laughs> it was not lost on me, John. Lo long ago in the late nineties. Remember those years? I can barely remember them. It's been so long. No. Secondly, well, I was, I, I don't remember a whole lot of them for very for different reasons. reasons. Fair, but, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, uh, but I want to get back to something in March and it was actually, um, you know, it, it's strange because every time I thought I couldn't get an emotional gut punch deeper, <laughs> I would, I would go another right. five, five or 10 pages and then it would just hurt more. Sure. Um, and the, the one that hurt the most was something that I don't think was meant to hurt. I think it was meant to be inspiring, but he says, um, and this is page 82, but the hardest part to learn, to truly understand deep in your heart, was how to find love for your attacker. Mm -hmm. right. And I am always fascinated because this is something that you see in society over and over again, you know, uh, most notably in the 20th century, Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., of course. Um, but there is this idea of, um, meeting meeting love with hate um 
but damn, it takes a long freaking time to well to get anything to change. Not advocating violence. I would never advocate violence. So please, I mean, Mandela, that. Mandela with apartheid had a very similar message with the Truth Commission. Um, Indeed, although that got muddied as time went on, as as did. a lot of these do. So, um, are we just I not capable of loving? Sure I'm sorry, Kel. Go go ahead and answer for it. Kelly was going to say something. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think that a fallacy that I I encountered, and this was honestly, I don't remember now where I came across it first. Um, but uh, uh, although people that know me know this, but since I assume there's at least two people listening that have no idea who I am, um, I'm a Taoist. Uh, I actually I actually follow. Uh, the Chinese practice of Taoism. And I feel like it was in reading and, and learning about that, but I don't remember where that I came across this thing that, that in, I'd always grown up thinking that the opposite of, of love is hate, that they are polar opposites like fire and water or fire and ice kind of thing. But what they proposed, and, and I think actually, as I think on it, it was more of a Buddhist ideal is that the antithesis of love is not hate. The antithesis of love is fear. And a byproduct of fear, a very quick and fast and often frequent uh, byproduct is hate. But hate comes from fear. It does not come from love. And so, and so there's something interesting to me about that. And, and while, uh, to be fair, I don't th recall March touching on this specifically, one of the tenets of that is this person that is hating you, you see past this veneer of hate and realize that they are actually afraid. And most times they are afraid of you which is a very different framing of a relationship. Now, I'm not, let me be super fucking clear. I'm not proposing I know anything about anything that any, anybody that marched in the 60s went through. Never have been in a march, never been attacked with police dogs, never been hit with a fire hose, either as a club or like with high pressure turned on. So I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that something that, that strikes me about that is that if, if you look at someone and realize they're afraid, and I mean, I'm also thinking in terms of having been a parent where, you know, not to tell stories on either of my daughters, but when they were very upset as little children, it would turn into a tantrum. And that, that, that rage was not coming necessarily just out as just pure. It was coming from a place of fear first, and it made them a lot easier to deal with. Like in my experience, it reframes the way you're thinking about this person. Um, I also think that in the moment that that's an incredibly difficult fucking thing to do, which is again, why I was really struck with the whole, that page you're referring to John is one of those sequences where that's in practice, right? They're practicing learning how to do it. So yeah. yes, that is, that is them practicing, um, how to react with nonviolence. Yeah. And, and so for me, I think part of it is, is that it's a, it's a way of actually seeing your persecutor. And I, I remember reading Gandhi referring to this too, that like in seeing them, seeing them as a whole person, not just the person that's attacking you, but seeing that they're another person, et cetera. I think that's an, I, like, and clearly John Lewis has a, a window into that from his own experiences based off of just the way this is written, which I think is extraordinary because frankly, listen, when I'm in a, when I'm in a confrontation or a fight, I'm not thinking, I'm not seeing them wholly. I'm generally just responding right yeah and and this is you know and again this is kind of going back to something that we talked about very early 
on uh, in this conversation, which is um, I don't know that we're capable right now of doing these things that we did in the 60s and finding ways that are what's interesting reductive without without anger what i thought was interesting john is um to your point because i agree with you i think so many people are interested in fighting rather than in hearing each other or or even trying to learn i think that there's much more reactivity and one of the things that strikes me is that he's very clear in crediting that it's not like john lewis is saying writing a book saying i had this idea and i started this thing he learned from people that were older that he trusted that that were there setting an example and saying this is how we have to do it and what i think is really sort of startling is it feels right now to me when i look around like the people that are in the positions that should be talking that way are not they are not talking in ways of of finding ways to 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 reach through to communicate to stand up to do what's necessary they're not doing anything like that at all they're not modeling any behavior except reactivity if somebody smacks you smack them back take take everything you can get etc like i'm just thinking about like the examples that were being given and so if that's the case then yeah i think there's something to your point of we may not be capable he may be describing a behavior that we are literally not capable of as a culture anymore and that's I don't know a, I don't know that's that a we'll sobering never... fucking thought. Well, well, I will, I will agree and add a add a asterisk. I think the world right now is not just dealing with one thing. the The world right now, for two years, has been traumatized. We have millions dead. We have tens of millions sick. We have had. We've got inflation. We have turmoil the likes of which you know we we've we've rarely seen in in generations as a collective whole so i don't know that right now we're capable of it i just don't believe that we'll never be capable of it i i choose to believe that we will but right now we are literally a traumatized culture with in the middle of its trauma that's going to have horrible ptsd for generations to come um I, I um, over over this, and that is, and and I think that has. I, I don't think you can discount the effect that that no, is having I, on yeah. people's ability to have reasonable reactions and conversations with each other. Hate crimes are way fucking up. Asians, Jews, blacks—they're fucking up. Middle Eastern, they're fucking up. They're not going down over the last two years. Even with people inside for months on end, they're still going up. It's not something that's going away, but I also think we can't discount the fact that everybody for two years has been fucking traumatized. So it's only adding to it. And quite frankly, I don't know without these circumstances, we would have had Black Lives Matters in the same way. I don't know because nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything happens within an ecosystem. This book happens within an ecosystem. This book happens within society as a whole and its um, response as well. Yes, I will push back 
but I'm going to push back when we're off line <laughs> because I want to, I want to get back uh, into I, the, the book itself. I um, have a question. I have a question pertinent to the book, sir. Please. Yeah, sir. Uh, John, what were the circumstances of the publishing of the book? Do you know, in other words, one of the things that in what Matthew was just saying, one of the things that struck me is it, it literally in thinking about the timing. I mean, like John Lewis probably could have pitched or done a comic version of his story anytime from 2000 forward. So there is something, what, do you know, was he approached by someone? Did he reach out to someone? Do you know anything about how the book came into existence? Uh, I don't mean I, to put you on the spot. I just, I just honestly figured if anybody would know, since you are, since it's your comic corner, I figure you would know. So. <laughs> I know nothing. In the research. I know absolutely nothing, but I believe. No, 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 that's fine. I believe the co-writer, Andrew Aiden, went to him and said, okay. hey, here's something that I think is important because. It will reach a generational. It will reach a generation that doesn't know. Okay. Or that okay. maybe has uh, received a minimal amount of, of history about this. Um, so, so to some degree, this is just the happenstance of someone finally going, oh, you know what? This would be a good idea to do and approaching him. And the timing is when the time I'm not I'm not being flip. I'm like figure that he must have been approached. What, like 2011? If it came out in 2013, y'all would know the timing, something like this better than I would. Uh, probably 2010, 2011. OK. All right. I so, will, yeah, I will do some research because I'm sure we're going to talk about part two and part three. Oh, good. Because I got to be honest, I, I actually, I, I don't know that we're at this part yet, but I enjoyed this enough that I actually am like grabbing volumes two and three. I should have known up front. Yeah. And well, it's, I mean, first of all, it's really well written. Like all yeah. joking aside, it is, it is extraordinarily well written. Um, it is really interesting because of, for me, at least the mix of the very personal, everything from, you know, his, his, his childhood love of chickens, which, which is fascinating, like including, cause he talked about the way they kill the chickens. And I actually watched my grandmother kill two chickens with her bare hands. She was walking, she had grabbed them from the hen house, had one in either hand. And as she walked very casually with a flick of each wrist, broke the necks of the chickens without breaking a stride. That's an early childhood memory. And I'm certain it has scarred me very badly, but, um, but like I resonated with his whole like, you know, they had to eat the chicken like like you don't get attached because they're a farm animal, et cetera. So a real personal insight into him as a as a human and then him being involved in like these bigger historic moments that I read about in school. But of course, they're after my time. I wasn't directly involved in them. And so it, it's a really lovely marriage of the very large scale political with the very small scale personal. Um, yeah. and, and, and so, you know, like I, I'm frankly, I'm like, I know what happens as stupid as it sounds. And I'm still like, I want to read books two and three, cause I want to kind of find out what happens. Yeah. Um, and then is run about his run for office. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm looking right now. Um, cause I saw it when I went to buy March, I saw run and I was like, Oh hell, there's a sequel. I didn't even, that's great. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's it starts, I believe, in the seventh. No, wait, wait, wait. Matthew's on Wikipedia. As we speak. It looks like it covers a lot of like the sixty-four national convention. Uh, oh, written really? 
Hang on. Holy shit. That's, no, 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 no. That's... I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's all too often. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure the timetable does honestly because I have not read it yet. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't, I didn't crack it open. It was sealed, so no, I didn't, I'll have to take I didn't. a look. Anyway, sorry, John. I did not mean to up in where you were headed. I just no, no, that's okay. Run, run is after. Run is between uh, March and between um, uh, leading into uh, what happened after the Civil Rights Voting Act was passed. Kind yeah. of like between the Got civil it. rights, of, between the Voting Act of '64 and Loving v. Virginia in '67. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. In got there. It. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, let us bring this back because we've had some very large conversations, some very deep conversations. We've learned some things about each other, and um, Kelly will bear witness to the screaming match that Matthew and I have immediately following this. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> um, oh. I'm excited to be the ringside uh, witness. Yeah. Um, so I, I, but I want to, I want to go back to the, uh, I want to go back to the the book. Um, yeah. This beautifully written book, again, March, John Lewis, uh, Andrew Aiden and Nate Powell. Um, was there, we, we talked about my emotional gut punch and there were actually two. There was the one that I talked about, but I want to know what, what part, what act, what, you know, what, uh, whether it was, you know, the act of the protesters, the act of the segregationists, um, was there something that you were like, wow, that, that hurts in a good way or a bad way or anywhere in between? Um, Matthew? Um, trying to think of a part that hasn't been spoken of yet. Um, uh, I I actually think uh, for me it was his first meeting with uh, with Dr. King mm -hmm. um, was something that really touched me and sort of the his sort of it it felt like a, such a a pivotal moment in his life of meeting someone that you revere of realizing that you have a strength within you to make a difference that you're not just you know one kid you know it it that that your voice counts. In, in some way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, they, you, uh, it was a sense of validation that he received um, that I thought was very, very affecting. Um, so that was that was one that really stood out to me in addition. Okay. Uh, Cal, did you have something that really struck out to you? Uh, I actually had, <coughs> I had two moments. Um, the, the, the one that was very, the one that hurt, the one that was very painful was the, the Emmett Till story and the fact uh i i knew that his murderers had gotten off scot-free what i did not remember or know was that of course they were excused from murder and then they they literally bragged about it in a time uh, like in a in a magazine interview because they they couldn't be reprosecuted which is perverse um and horrifying like in a way that i that i get really upset about thinking it's really horrifying that 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 stood and that like that there's no repercussion at, at all like there's no there's no sense of justice in that but um so that was that was for me very painful and then uh the one that i really loved was after they had uh started doing the sit-ins and there was the mass 
uh, arresting. And so they're all down in the holding cell and they've got so many people and so many more protesters that then the the uh, the city or whoever the authorities are cut the deal of like, all right, so instead of a hundred dollars bond, it's five dollars bond, which is still a lot of money in the 60s. But, you know, five dollars and no one they all stand together in unity and go, we're not by buying. We're supporting the system that is actually helping to oppress us. So we're we're content to stay here. And they finally let them go because they had no other choice. Yeah, there was something really. Again, I think in this day and age, it is hard to get people to trust in standing together because everyone is expecting somebody to turn on the group right. and leave everybody hanging and and getting a real life story, not a not a fictional narrative, but a real life story of like we 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 did this and this was the result is really uh, for me is very uplifting, very, very upbeat. So mm -hmm. what are your two, John? You said one. What was the other? Uh, my my other one was when uh, Thurgood Marshall was talking to them at Fisk, right? And he said, right. if someone offers you to get out, to get you out, get out. And uh, Lewis says, Thurgood Marshall was a good man, but listening to him speak convinced me more than ever that our revolt was as much against the traditional black leadership structure as it was against segregation and discrimination. And it struck me for two reasons. One, we sort of have this universal, this thought in our head that every every single black person was on the same page. <laughs> right, right. But what struck me uh, just as much was looking at this and knowing uh, knowing about uh, queer history and knowing about uh, a, a little bit, not as much about feminist history is interesting as to how much this happens constantly. This idea of, hey, you, you know, the old guard, and I'm putting that in right. quotations. I know, right. realize that we're not a YouTube show, that we're just a podcast, but I'm putting that in quotations. Um, <laughs> how much the old guard is fighting against the new guard, um, because there was very much um, in the, the 50s, when the queer movement with the Mattachine Society, well, at the time it was called the homophile movement, um, you, oh, wow. if you were going to protest, the men had to wear suits and the women had to wear dresses, otherwise you were not allowed. And no shit changed like 67, 68, like right before Stonewall. And we can have a whole conversation about that. I'm sure at some point someone will, uh, probably the, the this sort of queer equivalent to March would probably be stuck rubber baby by Howard Cruz, which we can talk about at some point. Um, but uh, how much this happens over and over again, and you sort of see this sort of um, trying to work within the system only goes so far. And while some people are saying, well, we still need to stay within the system and work, other people are saying, that system is never going to change more than you've changed it. You need to do something else and sort of how protest movements in general evolve. And, um, you know, it almost makes me want to say to every single minority group in America, you know, if we could all get along for like two years, everything would change and then we can go back to fighting. But there's, you know, we're all so convinced that there's only room for one of us at the right. table right. that we're constantly fighting each other. And it's, anyway, 
that's another political thing much larger than I want to go into at the moment. So, um, yeah, I'll say, you know, and I'll say this for March, it is spawning big conversations. No shit. I like, let's be honest. Like we've had five so far. That's one of the intents, I think. Yeah. Like there's big conversations happening and that's, uh, to me, that's the start of how things change, change on the whole is we have big, weird, awkward conversations. Um, yes. And even John, even to your point about, uh, about the, the overthrowing of the system, we're, you know, hell we're seeing that now when, you know, when you, we're calling for like the dismantling of the police and going, this system does not work. And there are of course, people that absolutely believe in that system and are very defensive of it. And there are people that are like, you know, get rid of it. And then there's, there's the, the gray middle area. Like, it's interesting. I never thought about it, but yeah, protest is often like, it's not just against within the system. It's completely overthrowing the existing system. Absolutely. And I do think it is important to note that any opinions expressed during John's comic corner are the, <laughs> uh, are the opinions of the person who has expressed them and do not necessarily represent that of John's comic corner, the creators, the producers, or the staff of April is the cruelest month. I think that's uh, a wise disclaimer to throw down, John. Probably should have yes. done that at the beginning. Probably should have done that, that at the top, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Josh, cut that and put that on, like, before the mu- the cue music starts. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, so, as I said at the beginning of this, um, I just want to say um, I, I love this book. Um, I've loved this book for many, many years now, but I love this book. Um, and as I said, I didn't really know how to discuss it without discussing larger issues. And so I appreciate you guys taking that journey with me. Sure. Yeah. As as we should, because it would be a disservice to the book if we didn't. It would be yes. a disservice to the life and memory of John Lewis if we didn't. Yes. And I... I um, I hope these sorts of discussions are happening in classrooms all over the country that are reading this book because they are important and they should be happening. Yes. Um, and I also think this has led to what four other comics corners between March book two, March book three, Mouse by Art Spiegelman and yeah. Stuff by Howard Cruz. I yeah. also think They Call Us Enemy should be on there as well. I would be happy to do that one as well. Um, so um yeah i feel like maybe we should call the next few episodes john's political comics corner Tony, we'll, yeah. break it up. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll we'll have a bounce yeah we'll throw in some fun stuff we'll, we'll throw, throw in some fun. some fun stuff too um so i want to thank you for joining us again we discussed march by john lewis uh by uh andrew aden and nate powell Um, available at your local comic shop, your local bookstore. Uh, If you do not know of a comic shop in your area, please go to comicshoplocator.com, enter your zip code, and that will give you um, a book in your area, a bookstore in your area. As Matthew noted, uh, if you want to uh, buy and donate a copy of March, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, a copy of Mouse, Uh, You can reach out to Nirvana Comics in Knoxville, Tennessee. They will be more than happy to help you. Um, It is a fabulous store. Uh, Tell Grant I said hello. Um, And we want to thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, Next time in the Comics Corner, uh, I think it will probably be a little less serious, but who knows? Who knows?
I may no, just throw in a serious like, book there just to mess with everybody's mind. Um, well, before before we sign off, is there anything y'all want to plug, Cal, anything you're working on that you want people to be aware of, to check out, to see? Uh, sure. What are you working on? If you are in the greater Atlanta, Georgia area, uh, uh, my production, I directed a production of, of um, The Importance of Being Earnest over at Stage Door Theater. And it is, uh, it is unique, I think, in that I, I've never seen any other production try this. Instead of setting it in London of, or England of the 1880s, uh, we have shifted it to Atlanta, Georgia of the 1920s. So all the English accents are replaced with high Southern and uh, uh, all the references are domestic. It's a very minor transposition, but it actually works really well. And I think it's a fun show. Um, it's much more what farcical. Are the dates? Uh, it opened Friday and it runs through the 20th of this month, weekends, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. So okay. we, uh, should mention, we should February mention 20. that this is February of 2022. Yes. Oh, Yes, we should mention that February of 2022, which means Josh, are we going to be up before the 20th? Because if not, then there's no there's yeah, no plug. Yeah, yeah. This here. this is the next episode. This is going live this week. All right. Um, okay. All right. Then then yeah, there's like there's a, you know there's a couple of weeks. That's the most immediate thing. Um, Matthew, John, what about you guys? Um, so right now, actually, my new webcomic, No Rhyme or Reason, is live on Tapas. Uh, episode one uh, debuted on February 1st. New episodes are dropping weekly uh, through April 5th. The whole comic is done. There's no chance of this being late. Um, it is uh, <laughs> illustrated by uh, Rich Vizicki and uh, uh, lettered by Nick Philpott. Uh, a couple creators who John is also very familiar with back from our days when we were working in a comic shop. And now we're making a really kick-ass uh, 1980s hard-boiled detective story for you. Um, a cop killer is on the loose in 1989 around Christmas time in Philadelphia. And a man outside the law is tasked with tracking him down. Again, uh, episodes are weekly. They are free. Um, please view, please subscribe. Uh, it's about eight to 10 panels per story. So it's a quick, fun read. Uh, so definitely check it out. Uh, you can find more on my Instagram at MacTheKnife1116 and on my Twitter at, Mac, at uh, MatthewKlein316. Uh, more to come. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Have a safe and wonderful day. Everyone be well. Um, please read March. Um, and gift and... it to a friend. Gift March to a friend if you can. Yes, buy two copies. Buy one, freeze one. You'll never know when it'll come in handy. There it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> thank you. We will see you next time on uh, the Comics Corner. Uh, be safe, be healthy, and uh, what is it you say, Matthew? Don't be cruel. Don't be cruel. Don't be cruel.